Welcome. Good to see everybody this morning. I'm glad that you're here, especially if you're visiting uh, this morning with us. It's a privilege to have, us, have you with us this morning and to join in on our worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to begin this morning with a riddle. Not too difficult, but it is a riddle nonetheless. Gentle enough to soothe the skin, light enough to caress the sky, hard enough to crack rocks. What am I? Water. Thank you. I know, it's on the screen. Da Vinci said, water is the driving force of all nature. He was right. Water is necessary for life. As beings who have life, we know this to be true. Wherever you find people on this earth, you're sure to find the source of water. Speaking from a biblical worldview, our need of water teaches us, of course, about our Creator. Genesis 1-2, in the story of creation, you recall, in the very first verses of the Bible, we hear about water. We read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It was Job who said, he gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. Moses recited the promise to Israel that, in fact, if they obeyed him, if they obeyed Yahweh, obeyed God, he would give them rain for their land in its season. Another riddle. What can you swallow that can also swallow you? (laughs) I told you, they're not too difficult. Water is the source of life, but it's also a source of pain. At least it can be. God used the floodwaters to, as it says in Genesis 6-7, blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. God used water as a punishment for sin. When Israel had run far from her God, it was Elijah who declared, there should be neither dew nor rain except by my word. And we know, if we remember that story, it was three years that it didn't rain in the land of Israel. The fact that it's God who gives the water and it's God who stops the water teaches us that we're dependent on God. Now, I don't think any of us lack water. Uh, In fact, we have so much water that we talk of premium water. You guys know of premium water, right? Even more, the way we carry our water reveals our status in our culture. Apparently, Julia Roberts prefers a $45 swell bottle and Jonah Hill, a $65 hydroflask bottle. You probably have one. (laughs) You would think that such abundance might draw us toward God, you'd think. Yet on the whole, it is not. I recognize I'm pushing the metaphor a little bit, but there's something to be said about abundance. Abundance is, you might say, a paradox. On one hand, it allows us to see God's provision, but on the other hand, it causes us to overlook God's provision. You remember this proverb, Proverbs 30, verses 7 and 9. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. 
Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Abundance is a paradox. In a country where I can purchase a 16.9-ounce bottle of Icelandic glacier spring water for $50, believe it or not, and put it, pour it in my $30 Yeti Rambler, that again is only 16.9 ounces, <laughs> it's, it's easy to overlook God's provision. You and I may be so close to the source that we fail to see him. You and, I, you and I may not lack water, but we all need water. That is, the kind of water that wells up to eternal life. I don't have to convince you of this. You know it to be true. Each of us longs for the answers to life's biggest questions. Why am I here? What happens after I die? It's possible in fact, that you're here this morning and you've come searching for such answers. And I'm glad you're here because this morning I believe we will discover at least some of those answers. For most of us, we've discovered the answer. We've drank from the water. We've previously come seeking water and we've taken that water in that wells up to eternal life. We're Christians and certainly we can rejoice in this. Praise God. We're believers. You've seen the movie Soul. It's a movie that our family enjoys a lot. It's a Disney Pixar movie. At the end of that movie, the main character listens to an allegory about a fish searching for the ocean. It goes like this. I heard this story about a fish. He swims up to an older fish and says... I'm trying to find this thing they call the ocean. The ocean, the older fish says, that's what you're in right now. This, says the young fish, this is water. What I want is the ocean. The young fish wants to find this amazing thing they call the ocean. Not knowing where to find it, he asks the help of an older fish. The older and wiser fish reveals that what the young fish is searching for is all around him. It's right in front of him. It's possible that you're like that young fish. You're swimming in the ocean. You've taken a drink from the kind of water that wells up to eternal life, yet you're still searching. In this case, or in that case, it's my hope that this morning, the ocean, you might say, will come into focus. That you and I will let the living waters of God's truth penetrate our hearts and minds like never before. That's always my prayer, my hope. Let us then go to God's word. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Our passage this morning is John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, John 4, verse 1 through 26. 
Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again from Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I, I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. A powerful passage of scripture, very familiar to us, and truly a joy to, to study and to reflect on this week. This morning, from this passage, I'd like to share three implications for those who drink the water that Jesus offers. Three implications for those who drink the water that Jesus offers. In the opening verses of this passage, we discover that Jesus is traveling from southern Israel, Judea, to northern Israel, Galilee. The reason for this movement is found in verse 1. 
Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. What's implied in this verse is that Jesus wasn't ready to deal with the Pharisees at this time. Dealing with them, of course, is going to bring him some notoriety, and that would come soon enough, and we'll discover that as we continue through the book. Anyone traveling from north, traveling north from Judea would have to travel through this region called Samaria. This region, it's, and its people had a bad reputation, you might say, in Jesus' day. You might know that the nation of Israel has been uh, defeated. They've been conquered a number of times throughout their history. Well, there was a time in Israel's history in which the, the nation was divided into a northern and a southern kingdom. About 700 years before Jesus came, the nation of Assyria came in and they destroyed the northern kingdom. They, they defeated the northern kingdom of Israel about 720 B.C., when the Assyrians took control of that northern region, they deported many of the Jews and replaced them with their own people. This kind of pattern that they used to do in antiquity. You'd kind of come and conquer a nation and then take your people and put them there. And in putting them there, they would spread the influence of their culture and their people and their religion to far-off places. So when the Assyrians came to Samaria, they brought their gods with them. They brought their idols with them. As a result, the religious practices of the region were tainted. Not only that, but there were Jews that remained in that region. They didn't deport all of the Jews. And so when those Assyrians came in, remember the Gentiles, when the Goyim came in and were put there, well, they intermarried with the Jews. And so they created this mixed breed of people that the strictest Jews despised. They were tainted. They were unclean. Now, by the time that Jesus comes, the religion of Samaria had kind of morphed into, it was a lot like Judaism, but it was different in kind of two primary ways. And so the, the religion of the, the Samaritans was different first in that they acknowledged only the Pentateuch, which means they were cut off from the prophets, the book of histories, uh, the Psalms. And so they didn't have a lot of information about Messiah, it's something about Messiah because the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, does say something about the Messiah. Deuteronomy 18 would be one place you might look up and talks about a future prophet that would come, a Messiah. But mostly they were cut off from information about the Messiah. Another uh, difference with their religion was that they refused to worship in Jerusalem. And we see this kind of come out in the text. They preferred their own temple that was built on Mount Gerizim. However, that temple did not stand in Jesus' day, and during this conversation it had been destroyed about 130 years before the Jews burned down their temple, 128 B.C. And so, as you can imagine, this would have only added to the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, this animosity, of course, led the strictest Jews to bypass Samaria when traveling north and south. They would take a longer route along the Jordan River to avoid contact with these unclean Samaritan people. Well, apparently, Jesus wasn't the strictest kind of Jew because we see in verse 4, it says, very interestingly in the way it says it, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through 
Samaria. Of course, we know that Jesus didn't have to. He could have gone around it, certainly. He could have avoided these people. It's possible that Jesus was trying to reach Galilee quickly, and so he had to pass through Samaria in that sense. However, it's also possible that John is helping us see something else, something I I think that's kind of shown throughout the book of John, and that's what I like to call the must of Jesus' mission, the must of his mission. Remember what Jesus said in John 3.14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up although it's translated he had to in chapter 4, the the verb is the same. The idea of must. The Son of Man must be lifted up, and Jesus must pass through Samaria. As we continue to study the Gospel of John, we'll see the must of of his mission come through in other places. The expression reveals the necessity of Jesus' mission. Jesus must come to seek and to save that which was lost. And this encounter with a Samaritan woman is such an example. One additional note before we discover our first implication. Look at verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The fact that Jesus sat... I think, in some ways, invites us to linger for a moment. There may have been a stone ledge to sit on, but as I understand the way these wells were constructed, uh, the spring was constructed, probably not. Christostom wrote, not upon a throne, not upon a cushion, but simply, and as he was, upon the ground. Wearied from travel, in the noonday sun, our Savior sits upon the ground. The Gospel of John emphasizes the deity of Christ. We saw that in chapter 1 of the book. John gives us a strong picture of the Word and Jesus, that he is God, no doubt. But here we see a picture of Christ's humanity. Leon Morris writes, In this Gospel we are reading about a man, an unusual man indeed, and one who did all sorts of things that other men have not been able to do. But unless we see that John is writing about a real man, one who knows our human limitations because he has experienced them all himself, we miss an important part of what he is saying. Now, with this in mind, let's look at verses 7 through 15, summarize some of this, where we find the first implication for those who drink the water that Jesus offers, and it's this, drinking results in eternal life. Drinking results in eternal life. In these verses, again, 7 through 15, we have an interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. The woman comes to draw water in the middle of the day and is alone. This suggests she's a social outcast. We'll confirm this later when we discover that she's been in a relationship with multiple men. When Jesus asks her for a drink, she confirms the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. John makes the point, adding, kind of in that parenthetical statement in verse 9, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Although spent from the journey, Jesus reveals he has something to give. 
In contrast to the water the woman gives, Jesus can give, as he says, living waters. Which leads quite naturally to the question raised in verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I think this question is, is similar to Nicodemus's question from chapter 3. Response, well, in the case of Nicodemus, Jesus, asks, Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You remember that in chapter 3, verse 5. In response, Nicodemus asks, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? In the case of the Samaritan woman, Jesus says, I will give you living waters. In response, she says, from where do you get that living water? Behind Nicodemus' question is the thought, I know you cannot mean that a person can be born twice. Of course you cannot mean that. Behind her question is the thought, I know you cannot mean this water. Both questions, Nicodemus with his how and the woman with her from where, lead both to the same conclusion. What Jesus is speaking about is not natural. Jesus is not speaking of physical birth, neither, neither is he speaking of physical water. What Jesus is speaking about is, of course, supernatural. Physical water is necessary for physical life, and spiritual water is necessary for spiritual life. Look at Jesus' Jesus's response in verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of the water, of this water, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is not concerned with quenching physical thirst. He is concerned with quenching the thirst of the soul. For nothing natural can quench the thirst of the soul. You know that quote from Augustine, our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. Now, although the English language doesn't show it, the drink that Jesus offers is not a continuous activity. I have a couple grammar comments here to make, and so follow me. This idea, this verb to drink, Jesus says, is, is not in the present tense. It's in what they call the aorist tense, which basically means it's in the past tense, which means the action is, again, in the past tense. One way to demonstrate this might be to translate verse 13 and 14 this way. This would be an over-translation, but it draws out what Jesus is saying. Everyone who continually drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever tastes of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. We should also take note of the phrase, will never be thirsty again. This is also significant. The negation, the way that Jesus negates that. Ume, in combination with the aorist, drink, and the future indicative, will be thirsty, result, again, follow me, in the strongest negation possible. There's not a stronger way to say that he'll never drink again, never thirst again. And so here's what all this means. You and I only need to come to Christ once. 
That's what Jesus is saying. You take one drink. It's not a continual activity. Paul said it this way. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You and I only need to drink once from the water that Christ offers, and we are secured. As a result, we don't need to seek experience or wonder about eternal security. Looking to Paul again, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, when you drank the water... Paul says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You and I need only come to Christ once, and you and I will never, never be thirsty again. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that you aren't to feed, nourish, and replenish the soul through word and through prayer and through Christian fellowship. Jesus is speaking of the giving of life. And once you and I drink from his living waters, we are in permanent possession of that life. Once we are born, we don't need to be born again. Once we drink, we do not need to thirst again. Finally, we discover that the living water that Jesus offers will become in us, he says, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Drinking results in eternal life, as our outline says. The spring that Jesus sp speaks of is not a cistern or a well that dries out. It's not the word that Jesus uses. A spring is different. It's not a cistern and it's not a well. It will not dry up. The spring that Jesus speaks of is not a stream. It's not like the, the Kern River that just goes out into nothing, dissipates into nothing and a dry, cracked ground. That's not this kind of stream or spring. The spring that Jesus speaks of remains within the person. It wells up inside the person, and it keeps him spiritually alive. It wells up to eternal life. In a dry climate like Palestine, Bakersfield, I think we can relate, people are aware of their need for water passage teaches us that Jesus satisfies our thirst. And the life that Jesus offers is not stagnant. It's no dry cistern or stream that gives way to nothing. The life that Jesus offers is abundant. We're going to see that later. It's an abundant life. And it's abundant because it is eternal. It goes on forever. To taste the water that Jesus offers is to secure your future. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in the story of Lazarus. He talks to Martha and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? To drink from Jesus, the, the water that Jesus offers, is in fact to find answers to life's biggest questions. 
Now, seeing the benefits of this water, the woman replies in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, the answer that Jesus gives reveals our second implication, and it's this. Second implication for those who drink the water that Jesus offers, drinking requires we address sin. Drinking requires we address sin. Look down at verses 16 through 19. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In a moment, with few words, Jesus exposes a broken life. Jesus addresses the sin in her life and exposes her need for Jesus. Like a master surgeon, Jesus cuts away the flesh and reveals the cancer inside, her sin. Barclay writes, the woman stiffened as if a sudden pain had caught her. She recoiled as if hit by a sudden shock. She grew white as one who had seen a sudden apparition. And so indeed she had, for, he says, she had finally, suddenly caught sight of herself. Jesus confirms what all of Scripture confirms, that those who thirst for the water Christ offers will confess and forsake their wicked ways. They will, as we say, Scripture says, repent. Repentance is a requirement. Old Testament talks about repentance. It doesn't use that word, but it talks about it, the idea of turning. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, the prophet says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The idea of forsaking our wicked ways and embracing Christ. Some people say that Jesus never preached repentance. Well, they, don't, they haven't read the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1.15 tells us that Jesus himself proclaimed, repent and believe in the Gospel. Turn to Christ. There's a track that we have out in our foyer. We, we like to give it out, the two ways to live track. That track talks about repentance. It talks about coming to Christ. And the authors who, of that track, they write this. When you come to Christ, they encourage us to talk to God. Admit that you have rebelled against him and deserve punishment. Ask him for forgiveness on the basis of Jesus' death in your place. Ask God to help you change from being a rebel to being someone who lives with Jesus as their ruler. To move from being a rebel to acknowledging that Jesus is our ruler. The idea of turning is the idea of repentance, addressing our sin. Now, of course, I know this is not a popular message. Certainly it's not in our day. But you and I have a problem. We all do. You and I are no different from this woman we're in this text. 
You might say, we have had five husbands. We've been found out. Barclay again. There are two revelations in Christianity. There is the revelation of God and the revelation of ourselves. No man ever really sees himself until he sees himself in the presence of Christ. And then he is appalled at the sight of himself. There is another way of putting it. Christianity begins with a sense of sin. It begins with a sudden realization that life as we are living it will not do. We awake to ourselves and we awake to our need of God. End quote. If you're a believer, you know this to be true. You know it to be true. When I first heard the gospel at the age of 23, it was immediately met with a revelation of my sin. I at once saw the beauty of Christ. And I at the same moment saw my own wretchedness. A revelation of God and a revelation of self, as Barclay says. We have it on the authority of Scripture that a person can come to Christ in no other way. There's no other way to drink from the stream that Jesus offers, to, to look down at the water and cup the water that he offers without seeing ourselves in the reflection, without addressing the sin that's in our heart and confessing it. It has to be addressed before we can drink from those living waters. Now, at this part, point in the story, it is hard to know what she is thinking. We don't know. Of course, we know the end of the story. We'll get, to, we'll get to the end of the story next week. But at this point, it's unclear. Now, as I take it, of course, knowing the end, I think this woman is on the right path. Here before Jesus, she makes no move to go. She doesn't run. She doesn't flee. She tells him the truth. And so, she stands before him and says, I have no husband. Which I believe cost her something. It was an admission. I'm not sure what words you spoke to the Savior, but I know these kind of words are required. These are the words that declare before God, I am in need. If you've turned to the Messiah and declared, stay out of my business. If our posture is private before the provider, well, you're going to remain parched. But if we have turned to the Messiah and declared with this woman, I have no husband, well, then your thirst will be quenched. Verses 20 through 26, we find a third and final implication for those who drink the water that Jesus offers. We have seen that drinking results in eternal life. Drinking requires that we address sin. And finally, we'll see that drinking reveals true worship. Having discovered that this unusual man is a prophet, she says, the woman asks about pardon. And her question reveals more of the dynamics between the Samaritans and the Jews. As we've already commented on, she wants to know if Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem is where she should seek pardon. Look at Jesus' response, starting in verse 21. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus gives her much to to ponder here. We might say, he blows her mind. Jesus pays her question a passing glance in verse 22, but at once he leapfrogs over her question and reveals an entirely new way of life, really an entirely new religion. To say the hour is coming is to speak of a crisis. Jesus is saying that pardon and salvation are coming to a crossroads. All the Samaritan and Jews know about religion is about to change. A critical point is coming, and Jesus says, is now here. And the crisis is this. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Whatever worship was before this crisis, it was not in spirit and truth. It couldn't have been because it was focused on the exterior Religion was outward. It was based on regulation and ritual. Worship was about a place on this mountain or in that city. What Jesus is saying is that new covenant worship is about the heart. True worship, true worshipers are not identified by where they worship, but by how they worship. In spirit and truth, as Jesus says. And this makes perfect sense because God is spirit. This is what true worship is predicated on. And if God is a spirit, then he's not confined to things, nor is he confined to a place. Therefore, to capture God in an idol or in a venue is to place a limit upon him. Now, this expression, in spirit and truth, is not two ideas, but one. If you're reading from an NIV or a CSB translation, the Greek is not in spirit and in truth. There are not two prepositions and thus two ideas. Rather, there's one preposition governing two nouns, in spirit and truth. There's one indivisible reality to worship, spirit and truth. True worshipers come from the fullness of a supernatural life in spirit and is founded on the word of God, the truth. To be, to be clear, I don't think the spirit, here as Jesus uses it, is referring to the Holy Spirit. I believe Jesus is speaking of the inner man, our true self, what we might call the human spirit or the heart of man. This is the part of us that dreams and thinks and desires. And it's only from this place that you and I can speak and meet with God. As Jesus says in verse 24, those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. As to the meaning of the word truth, 
Well, this can only mean that worship must be directed by the one who is the way and the truth and the life, Jesus. And our worship must be consistent with the truth God has revealed about himself in the word. True worship happens in the invisible parts of our being tethered to the visible word. That's what spirit and truth is, true worship. Thus, we must avoid two things. We must avoid truth and no spirit, which would be dead orthodoxy, and spirit and no truth, which would be zealous unorthodoxy. Of course, still trying to figure this out, the woman is hopeful that a day is coming when all these questions might be answered. She expresses confidence that Messiah will, verse 25, tell us all things. And then we have the climax of our passage in verse 26. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Although it doesn't really look like it here, this is one of these I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John, which we'll address as we keep moving through the book. Up to this point, Jesus had hardly been so clear about himself. Yet, with an outcast woman of Samaria, he delivers a striking reality. He declares himself to be the Messiah. From these final words, we realize how far Jesus has taken us. We started with a man. We end with a Messiah. We started with a request for water. We end with an offer of living water. We started with guilt. We have come upon forgiveness. We started with ritual. And of course, we end with worship. This passage, we find three implications for those who drink the water that Jesus offers. First, drinking from living water results in eternal life. Second, drinking from living water requires confession and repentance. We must address sin. Third, drinking from living waters reveals or allows us to participate in, you might say, true worship. You and I are freed from formalism. We're able to run to our creator with open arms. The Old Testament does have images of this. David gives us one in Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verses 6 and 8, David writes, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. It's an interesting statement from the Old Testament. But you have given me an open ear, David says. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart as if David knew about this future promise, this future reality that true worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And David had an open ear, he says. We'll see next week the Samaritan woman had an open ear. She would hear these words from Jesus and she would discern their true meaning. She would tell others as well. Well, if you've come this morning seeking answers to life's biggest questions, my prayer is that you've had 
an open ear. I realize there's a lot to take in here, and I assure you, you don't have to know ancient geography or grammar or ancient religion to find answers. Here's what you need to know, quite simply. Jesus is what you need. Whatever questions you have in your mind, whatever hurdle there is to overcome, the answer is found in Jesus. I know this sounds simplistic, not suggesting that past, your past experiences are painless or that every detail about Jesus is easy to comprehend. It's not. There are complex questions in the Bible and complex answers. But I believe with all my heart that the entry point to every answer, to the answer to life's biggest questions, the entry point is as simple as drinking water. You and I don't need to go clean our life up to come to him. We don't need to resolve anything. You don't need to go clean something up and then come to church. The opposite is true. You and I can bring everything we've ever done to him and lay them all at the foot of the cross where Jesus promises that you and I will thirst no more. I realize that most of us have come so far. We've taken in the water that Jesus offers. Yet, it's possible you're like that young fish in the story. You're trying to find this thing they call the ocean. In which, in which case, this passage is like an older and wiser fish who declares, that's what you're in right now. All too often, we're looking for the ocean and we've forgotten it's all around us. Whatever you're swimming around looking for, the ancient writer Pascal wrote, we spend our lives seeking fulfillment from vain things. He said, none of this can help, quote, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, he says, by God himself. Wherever you might be, each of us need to hear these words from Jesus. Whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will what? Never be thirsty again. Amen?